when we look at a lot of people who are out there on the front lines doing the work, they tend to be people of faith. Individuals who are willing to sacrifice sort of self-interest for the benefit of others. And I often have people, well, why would they do that? And I'm like, because they believe in something. Coming to you from Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Reed Weiler, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity and how it appears in work and in life. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I've been increasingly curious about the ways personal reflection and growth can spur a desire to leave a positive impact on the world. During a period of prolonged isolation and in the wake of the protests over George Floyd's murder, I experienced what I can only describe as a spiritual awakening. Surrounded by political, social, and personal turmoil, I found a sense of resilience in my connection with what I consider to be the divinity of the human spirit. Through meditation, exercise, and various other practices, spirituality came to dominate an ever larger swath of my thinking and allowed for me to see the world's challenges with unprecedented clarity. My personal experience with spirituality, and to a somewhat lesser extent, religion, has only served to feed my curiosity. Since I have developed a sense of resiliency by exploring the spiritual, I couldn't help but imagine what improvements to our civilization's well-being might be possible if this concept were to be applied at scale. Someone who happens to be studying at this intersection is Reverend Brian Osbig, an ordained elder at the United Methodist Church and university chaplain on campus at American University. Rev O is an experienced leader within the Methodist community and is currently pursuing doctoral studies in the Black mystic tradition of Howard Thurman and its relation to the civil rights movement. I'm honored and excited to have him here with me today to discuss the ways curiosity pops up around religious and spiritual traditions, as well as movements for social justice and the potential overlap between all of these various elements. So without further ado, welcome, Reverend. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for, for joining me. As you may be able to ascertain from that intro, all of these topics have uh, somewhat personal significance to me. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to just start by asking a bit about your journey. Can you think of a moment early on, either in your academic studies or just your journey uh, into faith that in which you were taken by curiosity? I have a hunger and joy in learning something new. For me, my faith um, in spirituality, like sits at the center of that curiosity, right? So for me, that curiosity is at the beginning, right? Like by being curious about this life we have, by being curious about this planet we live on, by being curious about this universe we exist on. Uh, one of my students like recently complained that like our our lecture veered into um, quantum physics, and they're like, "This is a religion course. Why are we talking about quantum physics?" And I'm like, wow, I find time theory really fascinating. Like, what if, you know, time is a dimension that we're having to deal with, you know, and like sort of coexists in this dimension at the same time. And they're like, stop it. You're making my brain hurt. Um, so, you know, for me, curiosity drives us into wanting to seek and come to know something more about God. And so, like, that's absolutely vital to sort of that depth of spirituality. And, and I think at the heart of spirituality, um, in its various different religious permutations that I know, um, is very much in that like grounding one or centering one in sort of these other, other experiences. Like when, when we think about meditation of quieting the self, 
so you can know yourself deeply, right? Uh, in some of the prayer practices or, or the, uh, like the Ignatian traditions of spirituality, of, of examination, in which you examine your whole day and then really ask questions about why does this moment stand out to me? Why is this important? And you know, what do I know or what can I learn about myself from studying that moment? I was, you know, really convinced I was going to move into the academic life and, you know, become a professor of sociology or anthropology or even, you know, religious studies. And it was only sort of later on that the two, this academic interest and this, my own personal faith interest connected. And I realized, oh, wait, there's this other thing I could be doing. (laughs) Switching gears just a little bit. I'm Curious to talk about young people uh, as sort of a demographic. Um, I imagine that you've done lots of work with like students and people through the, the AU chaplain community. And so what have you observed, if anything significant, about the way people, young people in particular, are approaching uh, spirituality and religion? Um, is, are there any noticeable trends? And what do you make of that um, sort of as, you know, a developing phenomenon? Trend-wise... It's a continuation of a trend we've been on for a while now, which has been sort of a distrust of uh, of pre-existing systems and institutions, right? And some of that is, you know, sort of some of that is uh, misperception of faith communities as being um, static and uh, and opinionated, and, and so. So like that diamondism of life we were just talking about doesn't sort of fit into that category. Um, and some of that is caricatures of what people of faith, you know, are. It's, I, I know this is an old sort of caricature, but like the church lady or whatever, right? You know, sort of this rigid, like, you know, you are of, you are of the faith and you are not. You're in, you're out um, sort of perspective. And I've always said, you know, it can be even in more rigid communities, it can be a little bit more nuanced than it gets presented. You know, I think that there is a hunger for um, trying to figure out, like, for meaning making. And it's one of the things that our faith traditions do give us and do give us very well, right? Is like that sense of, like, how is this all connected? What does this mean? Why am I here? Why are you here? And in that context, what does that mean we should be doing together? What I've seen is, like, in in a younger generation is like i'm i'm ready to talk to you and understand why you are the way you are and have this conversation about where we might find wisdom in that conversation or what i can glean from you uh to an extent but like how how that then gets related to why i should have to go to church on sunday morning is a different different story altogether so i think we see the continuation of that trend but a, like sort of a growing sense of like oh but there is something here and i need to figure out how to like sort of unpack that and, and grow into that for me when i think about my faith um or when i think about faith in general like the dynamic the dynamism of it like sort of the continued exploration um, becomes important and I would suggest 2,000 years of interpretive history suggests that we're always learning some new depth. We're always growing as a human community. And so given that, um, <laughs> you know, it's hard to stay it's static. That definitely aligns with like the experiences I've had and the, the people I've talked to. And I think the something that really stands out in that is that the question of what should we be doing together, like sort of this next conversation that maybe flows naturally out of the first one, which is like, you know, how do all these things interconnect and what is the nature of my existence? And so 
the AU community is somewhat known for international service and like supporting causes for social justice. That's a really big aspect of sort of the ethos on campus. And I'm just wondering if you see any connections between that hunger, that curiosity that young people maybe have. So, you know, there's been a lot of conversation in academic circles and in social justice circles around liberation. And some of those ideals flow out of a theological opinion, you know, put forward in the 50s and 60s, more in the 60s, uh, which is liberation theology, which is a perspective that God, that God is on the side of the oppressed, you know, and that God's inclination, and this is a Christian perspective, is for sort of uh, the liberation of the oppressed. We see that flowing philosophically now into a lot of spaces around social justice and sort of that call for social liberation. And so because of that, there's like this deep spiritual aspect of it that may not be articulated in a lot of spaces, but sitting back there in the background, like, you know, its original emanation is coming out of a perspective on faith and a a perspective on what life is supposed to be about. And so because of that, there's like this spiritual link, you know, keeping our values in check becomes really important. And one of the ideas that I've been really like focused on in my own work, in my academic pursuits and otherwise, has been this idea of awakening the moral imagination. So how do I see myself in the position of another and challenge my assumptions such that I can be as holistic and supportive of a person as I can be, right? Like how do I keep my imagination alive what I, what I see in Thurman and other mystics is like, I'm going to use metaphor to like make you really think about like, what are you walking into a conversation with? And what is another person walking into a conversation with that is so jarring and different from you? The example I, you know, that comes to mind is like, in general, if you ask someone like, oh, you know, when I asked you, if I asked you for a, you know, a poem about a, you know, a poem about something like a tree, everyone's like, oh, I think I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree, right? And, you know, and you're like, oh, trees are great. We love trees. But then you play Strange Fruit, which is a song about a lynching, you know, and all of a sudden a tree moves from being like this great sort of symbol of living in life into like, oh no, this is about something more dark and sinister about U.S. history that we have to deal with. And, you know, and that's one of those, uh, that's one of those like sort of places where we can push on the imagination and ask people to see things in a different perspective in all sorts of different ways. When we look at a lot of people who are out there on the front lines doing the work, They tend to be people of faith, individuals who are willing to sacrifice sort of self-interest for the benefit of others. And I often have people, well, why would they do that? And I'm like, because they believe in something that is so much more significant than self that they're willing to like set self aside for that benefit. We can look at, you know, MLK becomes the obvious one for Americans. Um, Mahatma Gandhi is frequently quoted. You know, these are individuals who absolutely, the faith aspect, this grounding in who they understood emanation of life to be, informed them in meaningful and significant way. There's an aspect of that that is sort of um, a, a dissatisfaction with the status quo, Um you know, that there's a sense of like, okay, the world isn't what we want it to be. We have an obligation to make it, we, we, we can make the world a gentler place. Um, and because of our understanding of that, we have a moral obligation to do so. 
So that, that, that in fact, like what self-awareness should re, re, bring us to is an interconnected sense of, of who we are. Um, the example, uh, this is going to sound really odd um, on a radio station, but uh, so I have four children um, and they always talk about that the water we drink now was the water of the dinosaurs, right? You know, and think about that. Like we are connected to life that was hundreds of millions of years ago because we all have the same water. This is water that a dinosaur drank. And like, you know, and, and that's where that's where meditation should take us. It should make us go, oh wow. So like I am part of a connected system. And in grounding myself, do I have a a broader awareness of the way that I'm related to everything that's around me? The air that I'm breathing, the ground I'm sitting on. Um, and so, you know, that, I think that's been one of the hiccups in mindfulness is that it became very much like I'm happy to like think about me, but, you know, it needs to move beyond just me. Self-awareness should should not leave one to self-centeredness, but actually self-otherness. I absolutely believe that like life is infused with sort of this creative intelligence impulse uh, to move on. I refer to it as the dandelion and the crack of the sidewalks. It's like, we're going to figure out how to move that, you know, and, and like, why is that impulse of life? Why does it push? Why does it find? I, I've, I've told others, I, I am not going to be surprised when we find life on, you know, Europa or Mars or whatever, because my experience of life is always to creatively engage and change and move and continue. Um, and there's this impulse to keep on like trying to figure it out. And I guess, you know, on sort of your question on the curiosity side, it, it's just that, like, what is the answer? What is the question that sometimes life gives us an answer. Um, so going back to my giraffe question, like why is the giraffe like that? You know, it's like, well, what was the question that the giraffe became the answer for? You know, this got me thinking like about something that maybe is a little bit unrelated, but now I'm curious personally to ask you is that, do you or do, does the Methodist tradition, I guess broadly have a view of God that is monotheistic, I guess, is, is the word I would ask, or um, because the way you describe this sort of creative intelligence as like a propulsory force for everything, to me, that that is sort of the best description I could give of God. And so I'm curious if you have a, another maybe layer to add to that, or I mean, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but um, I'm just curious now. I think in the Christian tradition, it would be very easy to sort of point to the creative impulse being um, an emanation of uh, our understanding of God. You know, the traditional language we would use around that would be sort of the sense of the Holy Spirit or sort of this animating force that like, you know, um, is a part of the the Godhead. That, that sort of sense of that impulse of life being an emanation of the divine spirit is definitely a part of sort of the Christian Maybe it's not well. It's not sort of as loudly articulated as I'm doing right now, but it, it, it's definitely in there in sort of the traditions of the Christian Church. Along that line, I have this quote here uh, from Howard Thurman that I thought was really, really interesting, which is that it is natural that man should concern himself with beginnings, and along that, man is an organic part of the universe. Like, how how would this reasoning sort of influence the trajectory of a movement or the success of a movement? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Thurman was a mystic in that mystic sort of um, 
reflective tradition, right? Like, so he's deeply interested in sort of examining and thinking about life, existence, and faith as a way of, uh, of sort of really deeply becoming aware and connected with the divine, deep reflective practices. So, you know, this idea of natural beginnings, uh, you know, he's really uh, sort of that sense of like, you know, how does all of this get started? And there should be a natural inclination to be be curious about that. And, and he gathered to himself when he was at Boston University, well, throughout his career, but more at BU, where he interacted with Martin Luther King Jr. These cadres of individuals, it, like it's sort of funny, and he'd have these conversations in a room, and he'd like ask questions and get people to deeply reflect about their sense of God and interconnectedness of living and life and whatever. And so when we talk about beginnings and this emanation all from the same place, you know, it's it's easy to begin to draw the line that leads us to MLK's, we are caught in an inescapable web of mutuality, right? That what happens for injustice for one and is injustice for all. That sense of the interconnectedness of life that we gain from the mystic traditions absolutely plays itself out in the rhetoric and conversation of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So many of the individuals there were grounded in this sense of life having a common origin. What we have in Thurman um, is this idea of the awakening of the moral imagination. Like he awoke the moral imagination to sort of see these interconnected metaphors for the way that we live. And what MLK and other civil rights leaders did was awaken the moral imagination of an entire country. So you have Thurman encouraging people to see the world a new, in a new way. And then you have someone like MLK, whose language around a dream awakens the moral imagination of an entire nation. We can get in sort of finer debates around how awakened the imagination of the American people really was. And like, you know, the fact that, you know, does that mean we feel back asleep? You know, how, how that goes back and forth. And yeah, the idea of moral imagination, I think, is sort of a beautiful sort of connection to curiosity. It's maybe the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, of, of pursuing your curiosity, we would hope, uh, in this domain. One of my final questions that I want to ask you is just like, if we had to sort of talk about now some some issues, there may be an area that, that this sort of thinking would be best suited for. Well, yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I think <laughs> given what's going on right now uh, in this moment, there's plenty that we could name. Um, I think the largest significant moral issue of our time is going to be the environment and our failure to address climate change in any meaningful way because it's hard and we're not ready to reimagine or rethink the way we live. Like, it's not a secret, you know, in particular, poor people are going to be disproportionately affected by climate change than individuals with means. Uh, wealthy countries are going to have a better time than countries with, you know, less access to, to wealth. I think we as an entire global community have to rethink all of our standards, right? Right now, I, I think we're all living with uh, more anxiety around uh, nuclear war than we have in, in years prior. I grew up in the 80s. I grew up near an Air Force base. This feels like an old fear of mine. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this anxiety. But I honestly believe that the largest single social evil of our time is going to be our inability to deal with climate change. Um, I imagine that my grandchildren are going to ask me why 
I didn't do more, you know, why my generation didn't do something about it. And, you know, and I think that I'm not going to have a great answer for them. I'm happy that you brought that up. And like, to me, I, I have hope in this regard, because I think the, the thing that's preventing us from really doing anything meaningful about it is just this disconnect. The impacts are offset, not just geographically, but through time, like you said. So I think all of that makes it really hard for people to access the badness of it. The moral imagination is just not being tapped into in some way. You know, that's the going back to this curiosity thing, the, the creative intelligence and the, curi- the curiosity, the curiosity of, hey, so is there a way that we can store all of the energy that the sun bathes us with in a single day? Right. Because, I mean, the sun produces and bathes the the earth, which is reflected back in space with more energy than human civilization has ever produced in its entirety. And it just goes away. So, like, the idea, the human curiosity of, like, can we invent a battery that can capture some of this so that we can move to a place that, okay, we all know that we need energy to accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. Like, so the storage issue is our problem right now. Right. Right. Yeah. And so curiosity might hold the key. Yeah. That's great. That's a great way to sort of tie it up. <laughs> Thanks. I do have a final little segment that we that we do every episode here, which is this the big jar of wannabe analogies. So it is a a handful of words, things, and uh, I'll I'll pick one for you, one for me, and one for the audience, and we'll have to uh, give a little description of what why we think curiosity is like this thing. The one for me um, that was drawn uh, was sneakers. Uh, and the one, uh, the, the analogy for you, Reverend, uh, is flashlight. Uh, so how is curiosity like a flashlight? <laughs> so why is curiosity like a flashlight? Um, I, I think it's like a flashlight because like, we sort of know and experience life to an extent and we could imagine or sort of have this metaphor that in some ways we're fumbling in a darkened space a darkened room and the flashlight of curiosity allows us to look at a space that we inhabit and really study and know what's actually there and so curiosity is a flashlight in that it encourages us and invites us to look in spaces that we would otherwise not see um, in this sort of space that we you know, this darkened sort of existence that we all share. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's great. So for me, uh, sneakers, let's see. Um, when I, when I think of sneakers, I think of like athletic shoes or like running shoes. Um, and so curiosity, um, is like a sneaker in that, uh, it's comfortable. It's something that perhaps you feel good sitting in, uh, maybe, um, you know, wearing, for the time being, but inevitably, I think it will motivate you to go do things and will sort of be a call to action. At least that's how I look at my sneakers when they're sitting in my closet and I'm thinking, oh, I should go for a run. Yeah. I mean, I hope they're a really cool pair of sneakers, like, you know, some like old Jordans or something like that, you know? <laughs> You've been listening to Choose to be Curious on 96.7 FM Radio Arlington. Find us online at wera.fm. Many thanks to my guest host and producer, Reed Weiler, who joined me as an intern this spring. 
I learned a lot from him and his journey exploring the interplay of curiosity, spirituality, and social justice. Maybe you have a passion you think we ought to explore through the curiosity lens. Let me know. Leave a note at choosetobecurious.com. I never know where these curiosity conversations will take me. One thing I do know is that Reed and I wouldn't be doing this if Arlington Independent Media hadn't launched the community radio station that is WERA or provided me and countless others with terrific training and facilities so we could share our conversations, passions, music, whatever. Check out AIM at arlingtonmedia.org and While you're there, maybe consider making a donation to keep this totally free and independent media coming your way. I hope you follow me on my website and social media, Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your fungus analogy, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to Reverend Osvig for joining Reed for this conversation. Links to his work on my website. Thanks too to Sean Ballack for our theme and other music. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Hey, y'all. It's me again. I wanted to take an opportunity to reflect on my experience as a guest producer for the show and discuss some of the ways that the research and the interview process impacted me. And I thought, what better time to do some reflecting than the sixth anniversary of Choose to be Curious? Firstly, my conversation with Reverend O reminded me of the power of asking questions. This was especially highlighted in a one-on-one format. I really enjoyed the interview process itself, and I was surprised at how powerful of a tool it can be to engage with others intellectually. This is something I haven't really done since high school, and this won't be the last time I do it. That being said, I definitely don't feel that I knocked it out of the park by any means, which makes me that much more impressed by the work that Lynn does on a weekly basis. Secondly, Getting to chat with someone from the Christian Methodist community was a new opportunity for me. It's something I'd never done before, and it was an opportunity that I really enjoyed. Despite growing up in a mostly secular community, I've recently been thinking about a quote from Ramakrishna, which is that all religions are true. This sentiment informs a lot of what I do, what I think, and what I'm interested in. And if Reverend O's perspective on things like the human spirit, civil rights, and the environment are any indication there may be quite a bit more for me to discover within the Methodist tradition. Rest assured, my journey is only getting started. Till next time. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.